Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. All right, we're back in studio for another episode of In the Landscape. I was just about to repeat our intro, but I have pre-recorded that. So you already know (laughs) that this is a, a landscape design and care podcast. We cover a range of topics. We're always open to suggestions and we love getting feedback from our listeners. It's really wonderful to know that there are, I won't say many, 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 <laughs> many listeners out there <laughs> listening, but there are several and it's, it's really exciting to be having this dialogue, a conversation. It certainly, I think, keeps us fresh in terms of what we're learning and, and communicating. Right. It's kind of a nice way to, you know, to have, well, an almost weekly We've been missing a week here and there just because life is <laughs> so busy. Well, the, um, like the, if you wish for success and then you have success, it's like you have to do a lot of work. To, we have a lot of uh, irons in the fire, all kinds of different enterprises. And, and somehow we never, we, it's like we don't seem to yet, as we don't have like a production assistant, we don't yet predict the days that we're going to need like a week off. So <laughs> we're going right. to try to get better at that and, and maybe even have some back episodes ready to unveil. So so please do keep tuning in, downloading, subscribe, rate, and review to In the Landscape. And of course, I'm one of your hosts, Kate Sadler. And with me is my co-host, Charles Sadler. Charles Sadler. <laughs> and so we're a husband and wife team. We run King Garden Inc., which is sort of our corporate entity. And then In the Landscape is our is our entertainment podcast entity. It's a thriving landscape design practice with offices in the Northeast and, and here in Texas. And so we have clients kind of all over, which keeps it interesting too. And this is all, this all is leading up to our topic today because there's <laughs> a range of activities that we get to be involved in. All right. Yeah. So some exciting news. We are now proud retailers of Bergen and Ball garden tools it's a company in England that has been in existence since... I think 1730. Isn't I think that is. amazing? I mean, it's like longer than the United States has been, a, has been a country. And the garden tools, there's a gentleman, a landscape architectural practice, I think it's Philadelphia, that I've seen at conferences. He collects antique garden mm. tools, like from many, you know, centuries and centuries ago. And so there's that tradition in England. I mean, if things are well-made... And the tools actually coincide with the design. Mm-hmm. So like when topiary started to emerge, I think that was the 1700s, maybe even the 1600s, it emerged because there were tools to clip mm-hmm. hedges and to clip shapes. So it's often the tools coincide with the creative element. Mm-hmm. And it's neat to see, but like, like when the lawnmower first became available in England, which was many centuries ago, there were horse-drawn ones and then eventually combustion engine and the tools are quite important. It's a practical element. Like without the tool, the uh, creativity is limited. Absolutely. So these are, it's just a special brand. We thought it matched well with our, the practice that we have, which is really heavy in topiary. And, and we wanted to partner with a brand that, that we felt good about using and um, actually took quite a while to find a brand that, that distributed and was a good fit. Yeah. That we could stand behind. Yeah. Where definitely. we really, well, the quality is similar to what we strive for. Right. So, if any of you are like 
frequent podcast listeners, you'll know there's always a promo code. So for our listeners, we're offering a promo code. <laughs> no surprise, it's landscape to get your discount on, on your purchase of these tools. If you want to, you can visit King Garden inc.com check out our garden shop page where i mean that's kind of the exciting part about it because it's we then think about what are the tools that we would recommend someone have in their sort of tool mm-hmm. library and so what do we want to offer first you know is it the knee pad that you use when you're weeding or is it like the seconders that we think you should have so right. it's almost like curating Mm-hmm. You know, thinking through like, this is what we think would be like a great starter pack or whatever. And um, some really beautiful, beautiful tools, gorgeous packaging. Right. And and a really, you know, I think they're even Royal Horticultural Society. Right. There's a National Trust. a little tongue-tied. <laughs> There's a couple of organizations in the UK in which Bergen and Ball partners with and there's endorsements. So one of them is Royal Horticultural Society. And then the National Trust is the other one. I mean, they have these all these historic gardens and landscapes of many shapes and sizes. And those organizations help protect, mm-hmm. promote, restore those. And so there's a lot of garden tool activity going on in, in the UK. So, and they've been doing it a long time. I mean, it's funny because in a way for poor listeners, we, we're sort of like our own sponsors. You know, we, it's, we have this business. We're excited to talk about kind of the business wing of the things that we do. We love that we have this educational podcast that we put out um, weekly, but it's more than anything. I hope it's somewhat interesting. I found this with the podcasts I listen to where they'll start doing live shows or, or you'll hear that they're getting a book together and they get, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of get to announce it's not just like announcing like, oh, hey, we have new stuff for you to buy, but it's more like getting a window into how they're developing. And, you know, so. Right. <laughs> it's like in real time to yeah. see it organically unfold. Mm, like what seems like the right move based on where you're going with your, you know, your podcast. I did say, now that we're somewhat into the podcast, that this all somewhat related to our topic. And I guess the idea of today's topic is the concept of diversity planning for diversity in your business, it is important to specialize and do what you do very well. So as you said, it took us a while to to find the right tool for us to, you know, incorporate in what we do. But, you know, selling tools is not just doing landscape design. So it's almost like diversifying in organic ways. And I think we'll talk about that in terms of, of planting in the landscape itself, but that there's there's kind of like beauty and diversity. There's health in diversity. I'm even thinking of, of our growing practice and it's great to be a generalist. It's it's a good way to get a job. Because you say it's like, a good yes, way to start. Yeah. Like when we speak yeah. to students or people ask to be a generalist, that is actually being diverse. Mm-hmm. And then having a specialty like, oh, um, I had grad schools. They love stormwater, like, which is sort of an engineering component of landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. I had almost no interest in that when I was in school. I was interested in healthcare garden design and restorative landscapes. And But we all took the same general courses. Mm-hmm. And then there was discretion within a project to specialize. Nice. So it was quite important that if you specialized, maybe there's a part of the country where you get a job and stormwater is like not an issue. Well, and as our practice grows, I think what we're finding is you might bring someone in, and I guess that's the it's, that's what an entry level position is for. But then, as quickly as as possible, 
as organically as possible, start to find the ways in which the people working for you can specialize and then mm-hmm. kind of promoting them along those tracks. And, you know, I mean, we're not, we're not the first business to do this, so it may not be a big revelation, but it's, you know, you may think right plant, right place, and, and you do your research and you try to get it right to start. But just being attuned to the way things are growing and developing and, and changing, especially if you're open to diversity and can have a tolerance for watching things unfold, then I think, you know, things can surprise you. Right, <laughs> you've had that like a good insight you. with our organization, how we've shifted people that were in roles, more internal roles, support, management. And then since I'm not going back and forth to New York, I mean, I was mm. like every three weeks, I was there often, or that the Northeast, people have grown into a sales interface role, a client mm-hmm. relations, mm-hmm. A, a vendor relations, and they're thriving. So... It's almost like transplanting, right? Like the fear mm. may be like, this plant is struggling. <laughs> I don't mean this it? episode to be a giant metaphor, but it's like the, we do talk about the right plant in the right place. And, you know, maybe you're inheriting a landscape or something and, and it just doesn't seem quite right. It's just not quite flourishing. And so you take the risk of kind of like uprooting it and transplanting it to give it those conditions that it needs to really thrive. Mm. And more often than not, I'm guessing it's worth the, it's worth the effort. It's worth the risk. You know, it's like, maybe that's, it may feel riskier to have kind of more diversity on the table. Right. It was in my travels, another horticulturalist, he was describing planting a rhododendron, like a native rhododendron. And he was saying the traditional, it's a little like apropos what you're saying. He said, you dig kind of a shell hole and the root ball ought to be very thin on a rhododendron, like a pancake. It's very thin. It's only like a few inches. If it's really that's how it would grow on its own. You don't even really plant it. You almost lay it on the ground in a, in a depression and you backfill it with mulch and leaves, mm. some of these native species. That's how it would grow on its own. So to plant it in a traditional way, it doesn't thrive. Mm. And it's up against a foundation and there's like concrete leaching you know, from the foundation and it's very deep. And so then when you see that in nature occurring and then someone explains you how mm. explains how it's done and I experienced I did that it, it thrived and it, mm. it was so far in the first time you do it it felt mm. like unnatural but the plant uh, knew what to do. <laughs> yeah. So you know it's interesting because I'm doing my dissertation on the subject of entrepreneurship in the performing arts but one of the key concepts really was open-mindedness like a mm. willingness to say maybe it doesn't need to be done the old way or maybe maybe you'll try something new just to see how it goes with like no judgment like maybe it will work we believe me plenty of plants don't make it which is not what we want but it can happen so it, it doesn't you know kind of letting go of that fixed outcome and I'm also thinking of the maintenance side of things and one of the reasons we're often called in it's a bit of a tension because you do we're in a business, so we're always trying to make sure things are as efficient as possible. So you mm-hmm. automate things, you streamline them, you get workflow, you know, flow charts. And because you you have to set up certain systems, if you sort of over rely on that, then you may have a system that is not adaptable. So if you if you're doing the the landscape hedge clipping with the electric trimmers just over and over again, and you never vary your technique to suit the individual species you're working with. Why? You know, you run into, it's like, 
then it's too much of a it's too much of a good thing the speed and the efficiency and you can get on these large mm-hmm. properties it's certainly good from a business perspective to be able to automate to that extent but that working you know, surface yeah. like if the working surface is wherever there's contact so it's mm-hmm. a, the tool contacting the hedge or the manager contacting or interfacing with the assistant but it really is case by case that yeah. it's so having automation guidelines but then it's dangerous. Like I've experienced that where it's gotten too automated, whether it's supervising planting or site analysis or where steps can be sort of glazed over. Mm. And then mm-hmm. sometimes it worked out fine. Other times it's a problem because it, <laughs> it wasn't something that was subtle was missed, mm. whether it's in a design sense or if there's something about the site was missed or the way something's being pruned or cared for. Yeah. So we have to take a lot of care when we think about scaling up some of our business practice or, you know, you just sort of get into the flow and it's like, oh, we've got a number of clients right now. It's all, you know, it's all gravy. Like, but then you almost lose that. Although it takes time and it takes attention, you, you lose that special interaction with the, with the uniqueness of a site. And the diversity is, it's an insurance policy mm-hmm. too, whether it's an organization or how you're pruning, or how you're designing and planting. I mean, if you're at a casino and you put all your money on one thing, it's very risky. Now, <laughs> so this fascination yeah. of, oh, we're going to win big. Oh, Pro- yeah, no, there's a big payoff, potentially. But probably not. The odds, okay. are, the odds are not good. <laughs> They're not good, no. So, you know, really the, the impetus for doing this, it w- wasn't just like, oh, this is a business podcast episode today, but um, was thinking about diversity, biological, biodiversity, <laughs> like there is a term for this, and how crucial it is from the microscopic level on up in a way that I'm not even sure we experience. What we can see is so, lim- I mean, I know what I can see is so limited. Yeah, You can't see below the soil. I mean, you can, there's soil probes, but still it's limited. Mm. And then there's the microorganisms. You can't see that. The, like the soil pH. I mean, there's mm. plenty of things you can investigate or determine. It's not available with the naked eye. Mm-hmm. There was like a, a job going on. There was a problem with one of the plants. And so I described it to people working there. Well, does the plant have, is it an off shade? Is it an off cast of green? Mm. And so I've developed that over a long time. Mm-hmm. And so it can still be green. You have a, like a hedge of 30 plants. If you've really... I just, from experience, it'll, when a plant's going to die, it'll subtly, it'd be off just a very little bit. Mm-mm. And then, <laughs> but that, that's everything. Yeah. It's, it might as well be dead and have no leaves. Yeah. It's like when, once that switch flips, it's being able to zoom in mm-hmm. when there's an issue. Well, and that's interesting too, because it's almost like, well, I don't know, that expression, missing the forest for the trees is sort of coming to mind. Like if there's a lack of, awareness about diversity then there's almost like a limitation to what you can see and i'm just mm. thinking of of folks who probably who may go around in the world i mean i guess for me it's like the way i hear music and, and the richness and the detail or even i've always been pretty interested in looking at, at nature and landscapes i'm really good at spotting animals though oh right and, and our son is he pick, he's picking that up <laughs> he is, <it's> so <laughs> but it's almost like that ability to distinguish the plants in the landscape and say it's not Mm -hmm. just one rolling hill of grasses but there's this 
this type and this seed head and this flower and, you know, and all of a sudden you're not just thinking in terms of diversity, but you're seeing it more readily mm-hmm. and, and almost like hungry for it when it's not there. So you're like, oh, well, that's a very spot, static. <laughs> like when you're in the, I mean, I know the Northeast well. So you're out hiking in the woods and there's, you're on a path and there's often a drainage. So it's like a low spot next to the path. That's where Jack in the pulpits mm-hmm. in the spring. Mm-hmm. So it's like a wet spot where that's that type of plant's going to spring up. So just having that, we've done hikes like that where you think there's this condition that's ideal for this plant and it's that time of year. It's exciting and it's somewhat scientific. Just it's and it's from your own observation. So in an engineered landscape, how do you ensure you're kind of getting enough diversity? You know, is there a formula or do you just sort of fumble your way into it or what do you know are there any rules of thumb well this an area that I'm, I'm learning more about but i rely on others for this too is the soil so mm. that's as time goes by we realize soil is so important so having diversity in the soil so from construction the ph can be affected getting the soil right there should be diversity in the soil mm-hmm. there should be microorganisms and activity and then the scale there's great literature out there. So having an alley, like a European designed landscape where there's an alley, double row of trees. And so it's one species that's not diversity, but there's lots of street tree and urban forestry research. It depends on the scale. On a given block, if there's burr oaks on a whole block, it's a whole city. So mm-hmm. that diversity on one street there's all the different scales mm-hmm. of diversity. So on that given block, those trees all could die. Mm. You know, like if there was mm-hmm. some type of a blight or a pest. But then is it the scale of the whole city? Is that that big a deal? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. So it sort of depends on what your area of influence is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're working with millions of trees in a large urban area, if your area of influence is just one block, you probably would want to have more diversity. Mm-hmm. And there are aesthetics now that are tied to diversity, mm-hmm. like the meadow movement mm-hmm. and the perennial movement and Om van Sweden, the new American garden movement, which I think was maybe started around the 1980s. This was starting to become popular using ornamental grasses. Some of that celebrates diversity in trees and shrubs. I would say the, the diversity in my experience is more recent. Hmm. So there's, the grasses and the perennials having lots of diversity. Mm-hmm. Although you were reading an interesting article about hedges in the UK that were oh, right. like, you could almost tell how old they were by like the emergence of new species. It's like they're these dense kind of eco, like little micro ecosystems. Oh, right. And then that was fa- a fascinating yeah. piece. That was um, the Bill Logan, the William Bryant Logan, who's an arborist and a acclaimed author, his book, Sproutland. And I think it was, I don't know if I'm going to have this right, but it was a, so if there's, let's say 26 species in this hedge, there's hawthorn, there's, you know, many different species, viburnum, serviceberry. It was for every species, it was a certain period of time hmm. that they, it was very accurate. I don't know if it was. And would those be like self-seeding? Correct. Like within, oh, so maybe birds would like land and then deposit the serviceberry seeds. And then, then you could tell based on how the service berry was like growing up within this right. hedgerow that, that that's. It might have been, it. was it a decade per species? Hmm. 
I mean, some of these hedgerows were hundreds or a thousand years old. But it's so interesting because you think of hedges as being like a monoculture. I do anyway. Like it's almost <laughs> the way we plant them is in a monoculture. And yet a healthy hedgerow has this little like diverse forest inside. That's and really it's, cool. For animals, it's very beneficial. Mm. I mean, well, it's like creatures, so mm. insects, that term an ecotone. So there's let's say birds of prey. So if you're a squirrel or a rodent or another, it's not safe to be out in the open. Mm-hmm. So these hedgerows, it could be between farmers' fields, it could be between suburban lots, even urban properties. So mm-hmm. those areas provide habitat and it's a safe corridor for creatures to travel in. Mm-hmm. And so there can be diversity. I mean, on some of the designs, I guess I try to pack as much diversity in as possible. Mm-hmm. As the years go by, I see the benefit to that. Well, we've talked about from a design perspective, like there are a lot of layers that can invite diversity. So just thinking about your annuals, the perennials, shrubs, trees, like gives you these like different layers. And then within that, you could be maybe mixing and matching in order to get more of a diverse impact. That's actually a good, that sort of nested structure from the research and the readings I do. The large shade trees, those are the most, have the most impact ecologically. Mm. So, I mean, they've done studies where they've counted the number of leaves on an oak, on a mature oak tree, where it was like 86,321 leaves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you can calculate all the ecological benefits. How much pollution is it filtering? How much storm water? Mm-hmm. And so how many flowers, how many caterpillars is that feeding? So that is where it really matters ecologically planting trees that will become large shade trees, if there's space for that, those have the most ecological benefits, which are good for people, good for other creatures to reduce greenhouse gases. So that's where it really matters. So which annual you put next to your sidewalk. Now, to pick something that's native and that has that also matters, but it's a large, the plants that will become very large, that's where it really matters. So instead of having a, a non-native and so sometimes it's hard because it's like the native might not be as interesting, but there can be interest in other areas. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of reframing what is interesting. Mm-hmm. And imagine, well, this is going to flower. There's going to be this special type of caterpillar is going to visit at this time of year. So what are some of the drawbacks to neglecting consideration of diversity? Again, I mean, we're, you know, we're planning landscapes, we're designing them. Clients have preferences. There's some some choices we need to adhere to. As you said, a native might be perfect, but maybe a, a non-invasive, non-native is really the thing that would steal the show. Mm-hmm. You know, so we are making choices. It's we're not we're not in the business of like reforestation. It's right. designing landscapes for residential homes. So why is diversity a concern in that sense? Like what how how much of an impact is it if it's just your home and how important is diversity, biologically speaking? You know, I've been following and reading Doug Talmay's book, I think it's Bringing Nature Home. And so the amount of the U.S. that is, that's more or less impacted somehow. There's so little land that is like virgin territory. Mm. So whether it's, even it might be a national forest, but that it was logged at some point yeah, sure. and then replanted. Mm-hmm. So, so an area that where we can make a big impact are residential landscapes. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a large actual square footage of the U.S. Mm-hmm. 
where people can, if every person plants one native tree, that would have a, a big impact and beneficial ecologically. Through history, I mean, I, I guess following, being a student of history, I'm not a historian, but I enjoy reading. <laughs> and so having, being aware, there's a reason people say like history keeps repeating itself. <laughs> so in the U.S., there were, now some of it were naturally occurring forests, like the American chestnut, the old story, like a squirrel could hop on an American chestnut tree in the southern U.S., and it could go from limb to limb all the way up the East Coast, like wow. thousands of miles, hmm. 1,500 miles. It was that prevalent. And it's often because of an importing and exporting of goods is how, how these blights often travel. Like there's a pallet mm -hmm. that comes from another country into the U.S., or I'm sure we're sending it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're exporting problems by too. So there was the American chestnut blight. That was also, it was used for, for furniture in mm. building homes. It was just an incredible wood. And then all that, the indigenous people, I believe, used that chestnut as, as a food source too. Mm -hmm. So since we are intervening with wild nature, having an awareness of a lack of diversity. So it's led to the chestnut trees died up, up the East Coast. So those don't exist anymore, really. Then there's, Do they exist at all? Like well, in there's what they call, occasionally you'll see one. I, I, mm -hmm. I've seen a small handful of thriving American chestnuts mm -hmm. that were not, that were like blight tolerant. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, a pretty incredible yeah. tree. And there's stump sprouts. So you'd be hiking in the woods. Mm -hmm. And so it's a stump that could be hundreds of years old. And there's no tree, but it, there'd be shoots will come out of it. Mm -hmm. And they'll, they might live 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then... Eventually, the blight will overtake them and oh, they'll boy. die back. So it's still out there. Right. So the emerald ash borer, ash trees are affected. That's like currently going on. Mm -hmm. The American elm. So that mm. was, exists in nature. It was, it's a very grand, when you plant that along a street, it creates this cathedral-like space, mm -hmm. which they're really the only formal part of Central Park. There's an alley of, of American elms mm. that's still in existence. They're maintaining them. They're treating oh, yeah, them. So it's a very grand. So that was a tree that was planted throughout, well, I don't know, the U.S., but definitely in the, the eastern U.S. That was a popular street tree. Mm -hmm. It was like a monoculture. So throughout U.S. history, there's been popular trees that were planted. So the ash tree, the elm tree, the chestnut tree, and each of those has experienced a blight. And so you see these pictures, whether it's Ohio or, you know, another part of the country. These glorious, you know, streets with these cathedral-like trees, and then there's pictures with with no trees. You know that they've been cut down. So I study the New York City Street Tree Program, and there's many others that are great. The Pacific Northwest has great programs. When I was in Chicago, that Riverside, mm -hmm. so having diversity where you have like more than a hundred different varieties of street trees, that mm -hmm. is an insurance policy. Mm -hmm. You're mentioning the word blight. We do a lot of work with boxwood. Mm -hmm. And of course, oh, there's right. trying to stem the tide of the blight itself. Like there are planted landscapes that have boxwood that are vulnerable. And mm -hmm. so you do everything you can in terms of biosecurity to prevent the infection in those plants. But then we're able to say from the perspective of design that the species maybe we're selecting is one that is kind of resistant to that now and saying like, well, maybe if we put a few firewalls in neighborhoods with this resistant kind, it won't leapfrog quite so easily. 
mm-hmm. to other people. Oh, right. So, That's a good point. Yeah. You know, you're really doing what you can to to try to support what's already there, especially since we, it sounds like we have more awareness about, about blight and how it, I mean, I'm using sort of a general term for different fungi, I'm sure, or whatever mm-hmm. they are. But yeah, like, so we have more awareness now. So we're trying to kind of, you know, keep invasives, detrimental pathogens from affecting what's there, but um, also in small ways, maybe getting these little pockets of resistance going. Right. I mean, the, with boxwood, when we are called to do that, then the client, I mean, some people like they call us because we're known for that. They'll insist we want boxwood. Mm. Uh, so there are substitutes, different types of holly, whether it's an Asian holly, those visually, they look very similar to boxwoods. And there are a native in the Southern US, there's Yopan holly. I might not be saying that like a Texan, but <laughs> <laughs> so there's dwarf Yopan holly where it's very small leaf. It's a native and there's cultivars of that. That can look quite similar. Mm. There's the design process. Mm-hmm. And it's like the educational process with the client mm-hmm. of what is your goal? Well, I want it to look this way. Okay, well, this would be one way to achieve that. Other clients say, I love the smell of boxwood. And, mm-hmm. But there's ways to temper it. Like restoration projects we've done lately that had maybe not thousands of boxwood, but thousands of, it was a, like a large scale. And plenty of the plants were not boxwood, but they looked like it. They were a type of holly. So that's a way to diversify and just an awareness. Mm-hmm. It's like with our diet, you know, it's, you want something to be delicious and pleasing and nutritious. And there's so many ways to achieve that. So mm-hmm. The mindset might be like, I've always eaten this way. <laughs> and with horticulture, I mean, things really shift. It can shift very quickly where these blights come in. So it's exciting on some of these restoration projects, a site is affected and there's going to be replanting. I mean, there's that term now, build it back better. So mm-hmm. that there's that possibility. So the site may never go back to the way it was. In some conditions here in Texas, when you get away from Houston toward Austin, San Antonio, I mean, it's over 100. The rainfall is not consistent. It might mm-hmm. be like 40 inches of rain. So it was like less than an inch of rain per week. So there are species that, that can handle that, that grow in Mexico. That's only a matter of, you know, miles, so to speak, which Mother Nature would do that anyways. I mean, mm, those plants, mm-hmm. but it would, might take hundreds or thousands of years, yeah. I'm going to guess, for those more drought-tolerant plants to come in. So we can, with mindfulness, I mean, we're definitely failable as humans, mm. you know, introducing things that have bad side effects, but there's quite good science. Mm-hmm. To support this would be a reasonable approach. That's one of the reasons I like that John Ferry garden so much is the oh, is, right. is the you know plant collections from Mexico and introducing like just kind of moving in some of these different plants that are a little farther south from where we are now and and getting to see them grow up close and personal and yeah so yeah. that's that's a destination we would encourage people yeah. to visit. So uh, anything else to share with listeners this week? Well, let's see. I mean, there are great apps and all kinds of um, online groups. So people often send us questions like, oh, what kind of plant is this? What kind of, so you could definitely find that out when you're out in the world and you're in a local park or you're out hiking. So I guess to appreciate diversity, you have to start seeing it. Mm. So yeah, I'm having to do that with a lot of different insects here in Texas. Oh, right. I'm like, oh my goodness, what is that? (laughs) 
And there was just a post about <laughs> Thank that. Thank goodness for the internet. <laughs> that, that caterpillar. I almost touched one. Thank God I didn't. Uh-oh. It, it was the white. It has very, it's, it's very, fuzzy. very fuzzy. Yeah. No, that's and it, it, lo- it looked like a fungus on the unsi- underside. Like of, I think. Maybe. Yeah. And so, I mean, those are like, almost like a snake bite, I guess. It's yeah. so oh. pain, pain. It's like, it's a chemical burn. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you didn't touch it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I knew. I did that one time when we were in, it was this incredible planting. It was like an ethical cultural society that just happened to have this incredible horticultural in Portland, Oregon. Oh, yeah. And the plant, I thought I recognized it. It was this like a chartreuse, mm. large, shrubby plant. It wasn't what I thought it was. Because oh. the underside <laughs> of it had these incredible spikes or oh, spines. No. And so that's... <laughs> so approaching the diversity, you know, with some caution, because yeah, that some is of these one, of, plants. one of the reasons you don't go mushroom hunting unless you really know what you're doing. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, diversity sort of is the principle for the week. Anything we should be mindful of aesthetically as we're going for like diverse palette. I mean, the size of the plants is still very important. Mm. So if you're going through the lens, okay, we have a townhouse garden and we want diversity, making sure the plant is going to be the right size. Mm. So in some urban conditions, let's say it's hot and dry, the plants might not grow that quickly. Or other plants, a shade tree might grow so quickly and outgrow the space. So getting, really checking, like with the locals, whoever that might be, other Mm -hmm. designers, nurseries, I mean, that there's a microclimate within your landscape where it's a hot side of the house or the shady side. Mm So the plants really perform different, differently and testing things out. I mean, I, I do that. And some of the larger projects, there's a test garden. They're going to plant tens of thousands of perennials and they'll try out like a hundred different varieties mm-hmm. and, they'll, and they'll assess how do things do. So it definitely takes, the diversity takes practice. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I've had plenty of failures where the majority of the plants succeeded, but there were areas where like, oh, that is intolerant of of being too wet you know mm-hmm. it's like has some plants have zero tolerance of being wet right and you really find that out like every single one died oh. <laughs> because the irrigation <laughs> was too wet or yeah all right well for those of you who are regular subscribers we're glad to be back with you this week and looking forward to another great episode next week feel free to send us your ideas or questions we can always put together a listener question episode mm-hmm. yeah, we have some building up so that yeah. might be might be about time Right. So if you want to get one in, (laughs) shoot us a line. (laughs) And we're pretty much available to answer questions and comments on our social media and by email. So please don't hesitate to reach out. We love hearing from you. And so until next week, we get to spend some time in a nice landscape near you. And thanks again for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.